0: Hi, I'm Angie Wisdom and welcome to my podcast, Sharing Wisdom. I'm an author and a keynote speaker and a master certified coach. And for the past 25 years, I've sat across the table from fascinating people, helping them break through their obstacles to achieve success in their life and business. The one thing I've learned and believe to this day is that you are capable, capable of change, capable of greatness, capable of anything you're willing to get serious about. And I want to help you get there. That's why I'm sharing all my wisdom and interviewing some of the most successful business leaders and athletes in the world so they can share their wisdom too. So get present and ready to learn. Welcome to Sharing Wisdom. Well, hello and welcome. I am super excited you are all joining today to listen in. I have a fantastic guest for you, somebody who kind of crossed his paths with me in another industry a long time ago in the financial space, and I'm glad to uh, welcome Chuck Garcia. He is an author, he's a speaker, he's a leadership coach. I mean, the the titles go on and on and I'm really grateful you're here, especially in this timing right now, in our world and economy and the job place to really talk about leadership, welcome. Well,
1: thank you, Angie, it's a pleasure to be here. Indeed, in fact, I think if we mark any time in history, we always say, oh, this is a really good time, but I have to say, this is a really good time to talk about these topics.
0: It really, really is. And and I know we had a a brief conversation before we jumped in here, and I can't wait to talk about really the shift that we're seeing. And as far as leadership is concerned, you know, we have similar histories as far as the financial space. And I have to go back to, say, 1997, when I started my journey into the financial investment world at Morgan Stanley, there was no leadership. It was management. We made it up. (laughs) (laughs) It was a much different game back then.
1: Yeah, they, they didn't call it that. And I remember I was at Bloomberg in the entire decade of the 90s, and I had the good fortune of being led by this amazing man. And and I learned more from him, not about management. Mike Bloomberg did not manage us. But without a doubt, he led us. And he led us first with the mindset of great expectations. And we, we never forgot, and I carried with me, something my father told me when I was a little kid. To those who are given much, and he paused for dramatic effect, much is expected. And, and he didn't mean it in any way other than if you are blessed enough to be giving something. He really meant it as, as a matter of reciprocity. You give mm-hmm. it back and then you give more. And if you give 10, 15% more of what you're giving, this is how to make the world a better place. And I learned that just that little snippet from my dad. And even though I studied management and commerce like we all did, when I was under the gravity of Mike, he had a style I never read about in a textbook. Mm. No professor ever talked about it. He led with this inspiration of expectations, and he gave us all of the tools, no matter what it was, to be able to meet or hopefully exceed them. It was such a simple model. They didn't look over our shoulder they they it, it wasn't anything like that it was here you are what are you going to do with this and if you need my help you let me know otherwise you'll figure it out and we had the freedom to determine how we were going to do it that was great leadership to me so wow. i thought firsthand because we had this amazing capacity to do things without a rule book Without mm-hmm. a compliance manual, yeah, it was go out into the world and take it. Oh, and if you need my help, you know, call me. Otherwise, I'm going to assume You're good. What sure. a simple model. But it was incredibly effective.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, that's what we know leadership as today, right? Like right, we're, right. we're very aware of all of those things, the empowerment, the space, the freedom, the support. But really back then, I mean, that was a rarity, wouldn't you say?
1: It was. In fact, I, I think when you... We compared as, as get together with your friends from college, or wherever, and you start to you start to recount. Hey, how's it going? Got a good boss, bad boss? One of the mm-hmm. people like? Did you get married? Do you have children? You start to recount the milestones. But ultimately, without question, you talk a lot about your work because you spend so much time doing it. It matters, mm-hmm. and and that was at a time, at least in my life. I had recently gotten married, thinking about a family. There were the other dimensions, trying to figure out that work-life balance. Is my wife okay? And if Mm we have kids, do we stay in the city? You know, all the things we go through. But ultimately, when you got to the talk back in the late 90s about your corporate culture, what was it like to come to work in that space? And you compared notes. I have to say, in my experience, I am I served Morgan Stanley, but I never worked there. The narratives of how we spent our day and how we thought about going to work, markedly different. Sure. You could tell who loved going to work. You could tell who hated going to work. It was so clear in the first few seconds.
0: For sure. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that time frame was really this pivotal point too, where we were coming out of the generation before us that was really like, You just showed up for work you did what you had to do you didn't have to necessarily like it you just you know clocked in clocked out and you did your job and that really started to evolve i think probably in tandem with great leadership but for you you know i mean you started so that was at bloomberg yeah and what years yeah what was that position you were holding at that time well i had two
1: yeah, the, the first, I'm bilingual. My parents are Brazilian, so my first seven years at Bloomberg I was head of Latin American sales, I spent my entire existence south of the border selling mm. Bloomberg terminals into Buenos Aires, Chile, Sao Paulo, Brazil, all of those places. However, through a simple twist of fate and maybe a little bit of luck, I became the company's public spokesman. Mm. So in 19, and it was 1997, I guess we were emerging into Morgan Stanley you would likely have seen me on a stage somewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And I was flying all around. Mike had now become the icon. He was a multi-billionaire by then. Bloomberg had taken its place. It was ubiquitous between the investment managers, the investment banks, corporations. everybody Everybody was adopting Bloomberg. My job was to go out into the world, and it was about branding. Mike was very conscious. When he started the organization, he talked about the Disney model. Three pillars, recruiting branding and training. Mm-hmm. And training, train the clients, train ourselves. But I was part of the branding This the, the job. We didn't have titles there, but let's call it head of global marketing. But not marketing in the sense of I was trying to figure out what's the user experience. There were other people to do that. To me, it was Bloomberg was always in demand as an organization to show up to all these conferences, to show up client conferences. And it was me. Yeah. So I flew all over the world, wherever Bloomberg terminals were, and they were everywhere stepping on stages and all of these industry conferences becoming the mouthpiece for this organization. Mm. I didn't know it then, but at the time, it was giving birth to what it is I do now, where I spend plenty of time on stage and coaching leadership. But I was so proud, Angie, to be in that position. For one, it was made up for me. I never considered I would do it, but I just had a knack for it. Mm -hmm. Before I knew it, it became a full-time job. But I state that because when you're speaking about an organization, you can't fake that. It, it has to be authentic. Sure. And, I, and, and I, I described, I was learning from like culture, leadership, collaboration, mm-hmm. becoming emotionally intelligent, everything now that is in my life now. I apply the rules of what I learned back then because it was so different. It was innovative. It wasn't just the innovative machine. It was the innovation of how we treat each other. That then became the basis of what became my second career.
0: So I I hear so much inspiration that really led you to that.
1: Indeed. When you are around inspiring people, you can't help but try to do the same with the people that are around you. And I learned from Mike it was a contagion. And also another contagion, if you're miserable, that's that's an even worse contagion. Yeah, But it wasn't like that. It was very much, oh my God, look how privileged, look how lucky we are to be on the precipice of this different kind of leadership, of this organization that was just succeeding beyond its wildest imagination. That's a gift.
0: Yeah. You absolutely.
1: can't take that kind of gift for granted. At least I never did, because I, I was so fortunate to be
0: yeah. I mean, that brings up two questions. One, I kind of have to pause and ask this question because I know so many of the listeners and they ask me this all the time. Like you said, you can't help but be inspirational and be inspired when you're around people like that. Absolutely. But not everybody is that fortunate and blessed to be around people like that. And and I think there's a leadership component and they're so What do people do when the people they are around don't tend to be that stand-up, inspiring leadership type of person?
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, people are going to be looking for that even though they don't get it at work. So there's two ways of looking at that. One is you put up with it as much as you hate doing it, and you find inspiration in your Mm non-work actions. Okay. It's not ideal, but it is one way. If you are in a position and you feel that you don't want to leave it for whatever reason, even though you may not be happy and you're not surrounded by the inspiration, somehow people do it all the time. And, and I see it. Here's the other part though. And I think we have a certain freedom, unless you are in a contracted employee consideration, you can always leave it. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard thing to mm-hmm. do. People are very comfortable, even comfortable in their misery, because it's the misery they know. Sure. And they're comfortable being in it and they don't want to provoke that comfort as bad as it is. But I think what we find, and the reason people change so often, is because they begin to think differently about what they want out of the work. Uh So in many cases, coming out of college, we all did. We didn't have much money. We got a crummy little apartment in the city or somewhere close. We go to work. We do the best we can to make more money to get a better apartment, and and then the cycle begins. But I think something happens when you begin to get to a certain point in your career. The mindset shifts as to the expectations of what I want out of that thing. Yeah. And when you're 22, people say, Goldman Sachs, good company, this bad company, whatever that is. And you don't know what that means, but you just follow that. At some point, everyone gets to decide what does that mean to me. Mm-hmm. And not only what do I want to do at work, even more important, not even why. I think the what and the why are not as important as the who. Mm-hmm. And I think there, there's a book out there called Who, Not
0: Why. Mm-hmm. Because
1: all people, well, what's your why? i don't give a damn what your why is if your who is bad right and that's the who Angie. who are you going to spend your time with i think people are too this is my own humble opinion they're too obsessed i want to be in that product Mm -hmm. i want to build that thing well to me i look at it differently i don't think that product or that thing matters nearly as much as who you're doing it with Mm -hmm. because the joy doesn't come from building the widget sure the joy comes from who you built that widget with wow Every night, I used to walk down Park Avenue on my way to Grand Central, and I would recount my day. And I purposely walked. It was a long walk from the Bloomberg office or the BlackRock office. But every night, I reflected, damn, I'm a lucky guy. I worked with incredibly smart people. They were kind and generous. Any conflict, we worked it out. Any disagreements, we were respectful. I never recounted what did I build or what did I sell. Instead, I reflected on how fortunate I was to be in that meeting with that guy or that woman that made me feel, God, we're doing good work. And I wish someone had told me that in college. Mm, they didn't. Yeah. We crammed, we examined, we regurgitated, and oh, go to Goldman or go to Morgan Stanley. Okay, why? Right. Well, it depends on the who. And if you get the who right, doesn't
0: matter what you do. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of talk around the who. It, it, there really right. wasn't. It was all very self-focused on what you could do, and it didn't matter so much about those that are around you, and it's so true. I mean, I love what you said. You know, we we don't, the joy is not in building the widget, it's around the people that you're with, and it sounds like you Russian. had that environment. So even though you had this environment, and you obviously were around inspirational people, people what did you see? As far as the opportunity for you that was so compelling, go, this is my direction.
1: Yeah. Well, it was funny that what I ultimately came to do, the job that I described as public spokesman did not just emerge out of thin air. And here's how it emerged, emerge, and it was interesting. I, I, I was responsible for a certain division of sales territory. In my case, it was Latin America and mm-hmm. Bloomberg. There was someone else someone for California, someone for Canada, whatever that was. Just about every week, we, as the managers, were expected to step up in front of most of the company and simply provide updates, but how's it going? So in my case, we started Mexico, then we went to Argentina, then we went to Chile. But Angie, what I saw, I saw some pretty successful people running their operating divisions and doing them well, and they got up in front of the crowd and they couldn't wait to sit down, they rushed through it. Mm. It was boring, it was lifeless, it was tactically proficient, Didn't take me to any place that I would have wanted to have gone. And as I watched them, and many of them were my friends, so no offense to them, their bar was incredibly low. Mm -hmm. I didn't see that request as a burden. I saw it as an opportunity. One, I got to do better than these Mm -hmm. guys. Because when I'm sitting there listening to them, I am incredibly bored here. There's got to be a better story. And they weren't telling it. They were just doing facts and figures. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of school. I was just memorizing stuff and spitting them back to my professor. Nothing good about that, but that's what we did. So Angie, here's where it happened. When I started to get up, I said, the first thing I'm going to do is not that. I'm going to bring energy, and I learned this from Warren Buffett. Bring your energy, and if you bring that energy, if you bring that enthusiasm, the focus is now targeted not to the words you were singing, but the way that you were making them Mm -hmm. feel. And so when I got up there and I talked about it and I told stories, here we were in Santiago, Chile. I had no idea what I was doing, I didn't understand the, the Chilean accent, mm-hmm. I didn't know where I was going, we didn't have GPS, I'm in a crummy hotel, the food sucks, but you know, what are you going to do? You got to make the best yeah. of it. So as I started doing that, I wasn't leading with the facts and the figures, I was actually ending with them because people were hanging on, oh my God, that's a cool story. Mm-hmm. As people were then, week after week, people saying, Chuck, you got to get up there. We don't want to hear from these other guys. What else you got? So all of a sudden, Angie, what happened? People started to see me as this brand. Wow, this guy's really good at this. All I was trying to do was not be like the other guys. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that strategic. I wasn't so intentional. I was just trying to serve the audience in a way that brought enthusiasm, which was a heck of a lot better than the alternative. And because of the visibility of that position, people now were asking me, hey, you did a nice job. Could you speak at this? Or we've got a guest coming in from another country. And I remember a bunch of Chinese ambassadors Uh or something like that, Chuck. Go talk to the Chinese. Then the Israeli guys came in. Chuck, could you talk to the Israelis? What do you want me to talk about? Anything you want. (sighs) That became then my association with, wow, he's good at this. And it became a job. So even though there wasn't a job description, I didn't apply for it. The opportunity presented itself. Mike was thinking about, who am I going to put into that position? It it was... Just the simplicity of wanting to do a better job that ultimately led me to this, and what I do for a living, I do this every day, all yeah. day. From so, that moment, that, that changed
0: what I did for Yeah, me. you saw a gap. You saw that there was a better way. And I think that's so important in leadership because you can be have great leadership skills as far as leading people, but you have to be able to speak. And it kind of command that audience and engagement in order to get people to actually listen, right? And and follow some of that leadership.
1: Agreed. However, mm. and here's the big but most people in their careers, ninety percent of them play it mm. To them, the mark of success is the absence of mistakes. Mm. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. And if you're gonna operate on my kid, the, the doctor, I don't want to sure. make mistakes. You know, so, I'm not diminishing the importance of technical confidence, but what I am suggesting that if you look at it from another angle, stepping out of that comfort zone, I didn't know what my comfort zone was. I was just trying to do a good job of something that led me to another place. I, I, I didn't have any fear because I had nothing to lose. I wasn't held captive or inert by the fact that I'm not going to be perfect. I didn't give a damn what mistakes I made because I never believed people are going to remember my mistakes because I didn't right. care. What they remember was how I made them feel. And I made them feel like I care enough about you to prepare intently for what I'm about to say and I want to bring you into my story because that's the only way that I can feel that you're going to get some value out yeah. of me. When I train people, though, Angie, what I came to learn and what gave birth to my second book, so my first book, A Climb to the Top, was teaching people yes. to communicate. Very mechanical and tactical. But what I learned is in order for me to be a better teacher, how do I help people remove Mm -hmm. their fears? It's that simple. If 90% of the people are in fear of making a mistake, they're not going to learn to communicate any better because they're always going to be on the lane that just keeps tactically proficient. Okay, I get that. Tactical proficiency is not an accelerator for Mm -hmm. careers, but it's good. But I think. We, we each of us get to decide what capacity are we willing to test in order to see what is our true potential. And I think most people are trapped by that anxiety, so they never
0: we. Yeah, and it. you said you know a lot of people they play it safe. So if if right. the listeners, if our leaders out there are saying yes, that is me. I tend to play it safe. How do they, you know, kind of push it a little bit and get out of that comfort zone to step up a little bit more?
1: Yeah. Well, it's one thing to say, hey, you know, get comfortable in the discomfort, but that's a fair attitude. What I can say, though, and I think most people, I I hope I could help them to change in their mindset, that try a few tactics Mm -hmm. at a time. If you play it safe, most people who play it safe tend to lean on bad habits, but things that they, they lean on that are bad habits that they're not aware of. So I recommend it to everybody, and they don't necessarily need a communications coach like me to do it. I ask everyone, no matter who they are, put yourself on a recording. Try to see yourself dispassionately and mm-hmm. watch it. Be mindful of how you show up, of how you speak, is their enthusiasm? Are you speaking, and I'm, oh, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, like, forget about it, and these filler words. Many people do. Look at the way that you address that camera, and ask yourself, if you, if you fired yourself, and then came back the next day back into the same position, what are the adjustments that you would make to work mm-hmm. yourself back into it? And, and when people begin to see... And I say this because most people only change when something they threaten is Mm -hmm. under siege. So imagine if your job is under siege, okay, what are you going to do to self-correct? If you don't hire me or many of my friends who coach and you were to coach yourself, what Mm -hmm. would you do? That's a hard thing for people to do. But if you really want that moment to figure out how to change this, you're going to have to get uncomfortable. Otherwise, if all you're looking for is comfort, you're not going to change one iota. Don't complain to people. Don't, don't choke on the regret. J- yeah. Just accept it. And, and that's OK. There's no judgment. You just have to decide how much capacity you right. will test, how much of the mistakes are you willing to tolerate, and some potential embarrassment. And, and that's OK. And that's why I wrote A Climb to the Top. I, it was a toolkit to help people
0: understand,
1: how do I communicate
0: with others? They didn't teach it's you that a, in school. Gosh, I wish we were taught more of these skills. I wish the kids were taught more of these in school um, because they go such a long way in communicating and leading and so much more than some of our, you know, core subjects. But you, I think, hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, you didn't care about what people thought. And that is so challenging for people. I mean, one of the biggest things I see, and I'm sure you see too as a coach, is people are so in their head about what someone's going to think of me. What is their opinion, or, you know, their judgment? What do you say to somebody who is kind of stuck in that fear of what other people will think about them?
1: Well, I have the good fortune now that I can point them to what is, to me, the greatest, well, next to the Seinfeld, the greatest <laughs> television show in the history of television. and oh, that's yeah. Russell. And anyone who watched it? Love it. Oh my goodness. I've never seen a show like this because the character of Ted Lasso is the most emotionally intelligent leader I've ever known. And when he was put into the situation and the circumstances of this show, at first you think, okay, this is ridiculous. But when you peel back the layers and you watch that behavior, he has no fear. He's gone in completely. He was there under a ruse. But I think I draw inspiration, Angie, from that because he is in a situation that he mm-hmm. didn't control, that seems so hopeless, and he uses the power of his emotional intelligence to move people to his cause. Whether he wins or loses, he's not. A, he, he never talks about mm-hmm. wins and losses. He talks about, we're going to play the game, we're going to do this. But I think to most people, look at Ted Lasso, a guy who had nothing to lose, never afraid to make a mistake. And what I love about this character, always asking the other coaches and the players, yeah, what did I have learned from this. What did we learn from this? How do we hope to do better next time? And what did we learn from that mistake? Most people, Angie, when they have mistakes or those embarrassing moments, they want to run 180 degrees in so true. That direction. Don't do it. Confront your fears.
0: You're you're really right about wanting to run from in the direction. You know, people have that embarrassment and they're like, I don't even want to face it, but there is so much to learn there and um i love that you bring up ted lasso i mean i'm like where this show is amazing i mean it's just
1: it is amazing and i have to say when i first watched it i didn't have any expectations people said hey jocky you're like this guy you're gonna learn a lot from him oh my god i i, I am amazed but there, there's a quote here early on in the show with ted lasso over the course of five minutes if it really came down to you, Walt, would quote be curious yes judgmental." And and what Ted Lasso was talking about, we all show up with our judgments. Could it do this, do that, do the other thing? But what I love about the character, be curious about the world, that's your social awareness. Be curious about your development. That's the self-awareness. That's the high emotional intelligence. I, Angie, stopped judging people 100 million years ago, and I don't give a damn how somebody judges. Yeah. I don't care. I just set out to put good work in the world, to contribute to the people who need my help, Whatever the outcome, and I'm stoic in my approach, outcome be damned. I can't control it. what I can control. Yes. Is to me, my behavior, what I say, my choices. That's it. Everything else, I just yeah. believe to the world. And and I hope I can inspire people to do the same. The more you are trapped in social judgment, what others think about you, the more you will inhibit your choices. And I think ultimately
0: So true. You know, I, I talk to people all the time about controlling our controllables. You know, make that list. What can't you control? What can you control? Because focusing on the things that you can't, I mean, that's just a, a, a dark rabbit hole there <laughs> that you want to go down. But, you know, in Ted Lasso, in your analogy there, it's like the unattachment, right? Don't be attached to the outcome. Um, be willing to learn. Let go of the ego. So many great pieces in there.
1: It's, it's rigor and it's discipline and it's work. It doesn't just come in a flash of an epiphany. Oh, my God. And I come to Jesus moment. Or
0: no, not at all. It really doesn't. And you bring up the emotional intelligence, which I think is super important because I was telling you earlier, I just came across this article today about leadership and how we're really pivoting from this IQ standard to really this EQ. Because of all that's going on in our world, layoffs, the economy shifts, they're saying leaders have to have more empathy. It's less intelligence now, more empathy. What are your thoughts on that?
1: My job, I was hired by the CEO who had announced to the public that he was going to resign. He had a year, year and a half. There were six C-level people below him. Each one of them was a candidate in the succession plan to become the CEO. When he hired me, he said, what I'd like you to do, you do not have an investment in the outcome, but I would like you to train the leaders on leadership communication and on emotional intelligence. Okay. So I wanted to involve the rest of the company, at least to have some input, them knowing this was a very public event. Your CEO is leaving. We are going to appoint a new one. I work with the board. I work with the CEO. But here's the most interesting part, Angie. We put together a survey to the 1,500 employees, and we asked them, if you could add input into the qualities of the next CEO of your organization, what would it be? And on the first round, we got 34 different cataloged it. we got 34 different responses. We want him or her to be this, that, the other thing. We whittled it down to three. And it was amazing through the continual filtering of this survey. What did you want in your leaders? So let me bring you back that this was 2019, mm. this was pre-COVID. Here's what it came up with. First, let me state what was uh-huh. not on the list. An Ivy League pedigree, a GPA, your IQ to the contrary. Three things, and I want our listeners to cheat this advice because it was unexpected. The number one thing we want out of our next CEO, it was three words, grace, ponder, huh. fire. What they were talking about, somebody who would stay calm under the weight of great expectations. The second, another three words, resolves conflicts effectively. Because when you're the CEO, you spend a lot of time in conflict resolution with your own team strategic disagreements. Here was number three, Angie, and this was the icing on the cake. Empathetic Mm -hmm. ship style. Now they were talking stylistically. We do not want a command control leader. We don't want someone who is fully collaborative and connected. That's very goofy. Hmm. They even talked about that. We're not a Uh Silicon Valley company. We we like collaboration. We appreciate that. We want our CEO to be in the middle Hmm. of the continuum. Someone who is commanding in their way, empathetic in their manner. A little bit of both. This is an interesting equilibrium between the two. He, she must be decisive, be held accountable, but be very empathetic in that. I feel your pain. I know how hard you're working. This is what the world is shifting to because this is what the generation coming up, this is what they want to follow. They don't want to follow because they they have to comply, do what this leader tells you. They want to be in a position of agency where I want to choose to follow the person who leads by example, is calm under the weight of expectations, is very good at communicating, is very empathetic in their way. I appreciate not everybody's in line from this succession plan, but every year I looked at the LinkedIn lists. Two lists. Number one, the LinkedIn top 10 Uh skill lists that are most in demand by employees blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, what you'd expect. The 2022, I don't think it's been refreshed for this year, the top five soft skills that appear on more ads in LinkedIn for recruiting than any other words. Everyone, if you got a pen, write this down because this becomes the barometer for your professional development.
0: Mm-hmm. Number
1: one, creativity. Number two, persuasion. Number three, collaboration. Number four, adaptability. And Angie, look what finally made number five. Wow. Emotional intelligence. Bingo. Thank God. Praise the Lord. It has made its way. But I think to your point, it's simply reflective of the changing expectations of people we want to choose to follow. What do they do well? And if anyone has the capacity for professional development choices,
0: tack I love so. it. I mean, it is... It- it's exciting to think about where this is going to lead things and the first thing that comes to my mind though is I work with a lot of business owners a lot of people who've started their business on their own you know hands in everything sometimes those business leaders the majority of time it's skills that are completely opposite of that that created their success so they're often sitting in my office going you know I just, why don't they just do what they need to do you know why you know there's this lack of empathy and it's gotten to where they are right but like how do we start to get those people to shift and lean into empathy
1: yeah what you're describing is the great coach Marshall yes. goldsmith wrote a book called what got you yep. here won't get you there and uh, it's mm-hmm. it's great it's a bible of mine marshall if you're here out there listening to this you're probably I don't know that you are, but thank you for everything that you have taught me. What he talked about is the paradox of success. That those that get promoted, and this is my world, I work with people promoted on the street for mm-hmm. their technical competence. Well done. But look what happens halfway up the mountain. The job description that you are now expected to work okay. is radically different. You're not expected to do coding. You used to be coding. Now you got to lead people to do coding. You're not going to lead them by being a better coder. You're going to lead them by being a better leader. So what what I think it's incumbent on everyone to recognize, if you aspire to leadership positions, just working on being a 1% better coder is admirable, but does not serve what's going to happen when your job description changes. So what do you do? If you aspire to those positions, think about what I said in the succession plan, grace under fire, conflict resolution, empathetic leadership. So go to the LinkedIn top. Begin to change the way that you view you, mm-hmm. your development because you get promoted into that position. I am often hired to fix those disasters. These guys watch the movie; they start to behave like the character that they saw, and everybody mm-hmm. thinks and wants them fired. Wow, like that, that all the time. So, take control of your career. Focus on the leadership, communication, emotional intelligence. These, to me, are the cornerstones. Don't try to do too much. Get better at communicating. Why I wrote a climb to the top. Get better at emotional intelligence. There's no lack of books out there or assessments you could take to measure your needs. And look at the equilibrium between being an external communicator, inspiring, provoking, and persuading people, and then being internally still in touch with yourself because that's the only way that you're going to lead others if you know how to lead yourself because if you don't, they're going to see yeah
0: thanks for sharing that um as i look at your and i didn't know this until we talked today about your new book coming out because a climb to the top is fantastic i just read it recently and i mean amazing just easily kind of executable pieces around leading around speaking around articulating so definitely highly recommend that to the people that are trying to get out of that comfort zone, be a little bit more fearless, right? Be able to engage um, an audience like that. But I'm even more excited about your second book, the moment that will define your life. Because as we are moving into this space of emotional intelligence and leading differently, which I think ultimately is going to create so much more potential in the people that we lead, people need that guide. so.
1: Do you? in fact I think the germ of the book was a climb to the top mm-hmm. was meant to be tactical, to help you face your fears and to become a better communicator. But as I thought about how I became a better teacher and I think I like to think of a better human being and uh, God knows I work on it, I thought about what would be the emotional companion to a climb to the top. I don't need to write a climb to the top too. Sorry. But when I talk about how do we get in touch with ourselves to help us not just become better readers, become better right. fathers, husbands, wives, you know, parents to our children, how can we be better? I really talk about the combination of emotional intelligence and stoicism. Using both stoicism, not as an unfeeling to the contrary, it's knowing how to be in touch with your feelings What's to up? maximize your potential. Take a deep breath. Think about where this has come. This place of authenticity. Don't worry about the mistakes. Just try as best you can to recognize we all humans, we all screw up. We make mistakes. Forgive others. Forgive yourself. Start with that. Forgive yourself for the mistakes and all the other bad stuff that has happened in your life. Start with clarity of mind. Think about who you are, what you want out of your life. It's not gonna happen by accident. You teach. Teach it. Teach it.
0: That is the wisdom that we were looking for from you today. Thank you so much for sharing that, Chuck. I am very excited about your book coming out. Um, I, I like to always ask my um, guests a question. You shared so much of your own wisdom, but give us one piece of wisdom that somebody has shared with you along your path and your journey that has always stood out to you as like, that is one of the best pieces of wisdom I've ever received.
1: I think I got this and I have to give Mike. Bloomberg credit for this. When I thought about my own educational model, I thought about all the things I got wrong. And if I got a 92 on an exam, congratulations, I got an A and everybody's high-fiving. What Mike taught us, very armed, armed in and awkward here, is there's no failure, Chuck. He said that. There's only feedback. Every piece of information that comes at you is meant for the purpose of turning it into something productive. And I say that because what I find is when people get things wrong, when people screw up, they become self yeah. They beat themselves up. To Mike's point is every moment that you're spending beating yourself up is another moment you're not advancing on your mountain. So we never forgot that. No failure, only feedback. Failure is just a human construct. Feedback is a very real thing. So if you screw up and you fail, yeah. what are you going to do? Come back another day. No failure, only feedback. feedback. Everything is feedback all the time. Everything is your teacher, and we are each other's teachers. And if you have the mindset of opening up that brain of ours to recognize everything is a learning moment, not to be destructive, but meant to be
0: constructive. I love it. Another are. great piece of wisdom. Thank you. So, Chuck, for everyone that is listening and they're going, gosh, this guy has so many great you know, pieces of information. They want to make sure they get your book. Where's the best place for them to follow along for you?
1: You bet. Well, the best thing you can always, uh, if you remember my name, my name is Chuck Garcia. If you add a .com to it, you got me. It's chuckgarcia.com. For social media, I'm active on LinkedIn. You can just type in Chuck Garcia and you'll see me. And if you recognize my picture or hear my voice, you'll see how I did. And you can always go there. And then you can go to Instagram. I'm there a couple times a week. It's called The Flying to the Top, which is the name of my book. But my recommend, if you want to get in touch with me, hit me on my website. There's a contact tab or Go to linkedin which many people find me Send love
0: message it thank you again for coming on and sharing your wisdom and uh, yeah. thank and you look for forward to we'll get you back question. on when that book comes out so that we can talk more about that emotional intelligence hey thanks for tuning in today i hope you found your dose of wisdom for the day and remember just don't take it in live the wisdom and share the wisdom if you like this episode give us a like below and comment let me know what you think If you want to be sure to catch all the episodes of Sharing Wisdom, hit that follow button. If you want more of Angie Wisdom, you can go to AngieWisdom.com and sign up for Words of Wisdom or follow me over on YouTube and Instagram at Angie Wisdom Life Coach.